Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We will read a portion of Revelation chapter 20 and one verse of 21. Today's sermon is the first time in my life, I think, I think, I hope I'm not lying, that I preach on this subject. I started preaching publicly on bosses in 1981 and then Bible studies and things in 1982. I don't believe I have ever preached on the doctrine of hell. Let us read Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Please skip to verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And this concludes the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, I 
commit to you the reading of your word, and I commit to you the exposition I will do over the following minutes, and I pray for a power that is beyond any human being alive, and it is the power, or dead for the matter, it is the power that only the Holy Spirit has to apply your word, to make it living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that your word may penetrate our souls and our minds and even our marrows and may discern the intentions of our hearts and may bring glory to Jesus, may bring glory to your name, may bring salvation, consolation, instruction, or exhortation according to your power and not the power of any human being. I pray that you help us with attention, with any distractions. I plead with you that you use your word for the purposes for which you have sent it in this hour to us, this little flock. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Revelation is mostly an allegorical book. We have to be careful as we read it because we can build things that are not there in this book that is full with figures of speech. The book of Revelation mainly depicts a cosmic battle for the redeemed. The battle of God versus the prince of this world and the powers of this world for the redeemed. It presents the persecution, the ostracizing, the suffering of those who follow Christ and their apparent loss while we are in this world. But the book shows that in the end, Jesus wins. Somebody asks you, what is Revelation about? It is not a book about the end times. It is a book that summarizes in allegorical language the story or the history of redemption. From garden to paradise, the story of how Jesus wins to conquer his church. And it ends in the church coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. The illustration from Old Testament to New of Jesus marrying his people. The redeemed end at a garden paradise with a tree of life for the healing of the nations. The redeemed end in Jesus' victory right where Adam failed at a garden before a tree. That's what Revelation is about. In this allegory, we find this difficult subject that, as I told you before, it is the first time in my life that I remember that I preach about, and it is the subject of hell. John Stott wrote about this. Emotionally, I find the concept of eternal torment intolerable. And do not understand how people can live with it 
without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining the truth. As a committed evangelical, my question must be, and is not what my heart tells me, but what does God's word say? I was telling someone yesterday that, quoting MacArthur, I care very little for what certain texts of scripture mean to you or to me. I care to know what they mean, what God intended with them. And this is one of those doctrines. And this morning I just want to consider with you a simple outline. What is hell? Some caveats or things to be guarded off regarding hell. And that the gospel is not about hell. First, what is hell? It appears in figurative language in the text we just read several times as a lake of fire. In the Bible geographical points, especially in the Old Testament, we have to pay attention to them because many times the geography of the Bible has a theological symbolism. A lake is a dividing body of water. Lakes separated countries or regions. And fire in scripture is a synonym frequently for God's wrath or for God's judgment. Romans 2.5 indicates that the ungodly store wrath for the day of wrath upon themselves and for the day of the manifestation of the righteous judgment of God. And when the Old Testament speaks of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, it speaks of it as a day of doom, a day of darkness, a day of fire, a day of wrath. So this lake of fire is a dividing element where God's wrath and judgment is displayed. God rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim in the days of old because of their sin. Elisha the prophet, when twice Captains with fifties would come to him in an insolent manner, calling him man of God in a mocking way. He would tell them, if I am a man of God, may fire descend upon you. And fire came and consumed them, showing the judgment of God upon them. The same happens with Elijah in that sacrifice to Baal. The expiatory offerings were burned on the altar. Why? Why, when the sacrifice was for atoning sin, it had to be burned completely? Because it was a display of God's wrath and of God's judgment upon sin. And we can make a connection of those sacrifices being burned under God's wrath. And the one who on the cross cried out, My father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Because he bore the wrath and the curse of God on the cross. Hell is separation. 
this lake of fire, this lake, this dividing body. It's showing separation of what? The Apostle Paul defines it in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9 as being separated from God and from the glory of his presence. In Matthew 25, 41, we have this parable illustrating the end times when righteous and unrighteous will be separated as a pastor separates sheep from goats and the righteous are sent to eternal life and the unrighteous are sent to eternal condemnation or destruction. Creation, though it is cursed and we live in a cursed creation, still enjoys the benefits of God's mercy and presence. We still enjoy the rising of the sun, the rain shower that falls on righteous and unrighteous. We enjoy the magnificent sights when we visit places that leave us in awe and wonder. We, we observe even now with astrophysics and the things that are observed in the galaxies and you wonder why were these things made? Well, they were made for God's glory. And now we are realizing some of those things. They call it the, the known universe. Aware that we just can see a very little portion of it. All of that displays the magnificence, the glory, the beauty of God. We still enjoy it. And even Romans 8 says, this creation is cursed and is subject to bondage into slavery. This creation today moans and groans in pain because of the slavery to which it was subjected on account of Adam's sin. And yet, it is a wonderful creation. Well, hell is being absent even from that. It is such a curse that not even the wonders we can observe in a cursed creation will be observable. God will be present in hell, says the late Ted Donnelly in his book, Heaven and Hell. But it's going to be an angry presence. The wicked commit their wickedness and they don't feel the pain or the pressure of God's judgment. They even say, God is not doing anything to us. He must be like us. And God says to them, I am not like you. They are just storing wrath for the day of wrath. On that day, there will not be any magnificent or benevolent presence or sense of God. Hell is the place where God's angry presence lies because nothing can escape his presence. Hell is separation from God's kindness, even his kind presence in common grace. Hell, thirdly, is spiritual grief. Jesus calls it weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Psalm 110 appears that expression of gnashing of teeth as anger. People just gnash their teeth because they're angry. Hell is that place. Hell is a place of weeping, according to Matthew 13, 42. It is being under this duress caused by an awareness and a consciousness of God's judgment and wrath upon our sin. 
Hell is that place where our conscience or the conscience torments to the end. The grief, the pain without respite. There is this post-mortem grief that appears to be the case in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man cries out, please send Lazarus to dip his tongue and, and wet my tongue in water. Well, he, he didn't have a physical tongue. We have to understand the allegorical language. He didn't have a body. It's a parable that is ex- expressing a great need, the anguish of scarcity, the anguish of lacking everything. He was a rich man that came to total ruin. Or send Lazarus to speak to my brothers that they may not come to this place. There is this awareness of grief and pain. And hell is an irrevocable and unchanging condition. Revelation 11.14 reads about the beast and the false prophet and those who worship the beast and its image. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. It is a despicable and detestable state. Jesus used the word Gehenna for it. Kehena comes from the valley of Bay Hinnom, the valley of the son of Hinnom, the valley where the Israelites would bring their children and sacrifice them by fire to Molech. It was a detestable place. Those who have gone to Israel have, have, have seen that, that area outside of the, of the old city. Medieval traditions that have been apparently debunked, say that it used to be a a landfill, an area of trash where there was always fire burning. But apparently that has been debunked. But regardless, Gehenna was this place where the Israelites would burn their babies and offer them to this detestable idol, as the Old Testament calls it, Moloch. You just imagine that picture. Jesus says, well, that's... Gehenna, a place of wrath, a place of fire. In Jeremiah and Isaiah, this Bay Hinnom, this valley of the son of Hinnom, was used to describe God, God displaying and pouring down his wrath and his judgment upon Israel. Jesus calls it the outer darkness. Some of you like dark movies. I don't. I don't like dark movies, but some people like them. And you have this imagery, this constant darkness. It's this, this, this gloominess. Now, what does that mean? I, again, I think I'm, I'm dealing with, with allegorical language. We have to be careful, not being literalistic with these expressions. But the Bible says that God is light. And there is no darkness in him. So what is this outer darkness? Again, it is this place where there's absence, absolute 
absence of any kindness, grace, beauty, holiness, order that we receive from God. All of that is absent in that state, in that condition, in that place, Scripture called hell. Hell is a condition of perpetual confusion and shame. The, the word in Daniel implies that. Implies it's a place of worthlessness. Daniel 12, 1 and 2 says, On that day there will be two resurrections. The resurrection of the righteous, of those who will rise to life, of those who will rise to shine as lights in the firmament. But there also will be this resurrection of those who will be risen to shame and perpetual worthlessness, perpetual confusion, perpetual nothingness, whatever that word in the Hebrew means. Because hell is eternal ruin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.18 that the things we see are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Sometimes I'm enjoying my pool, summer night, enjoying the breeze. And, and the thought frequently comes to me. Who will be here 30 years from now? Who will buy this house? Who will live here? Who will use this? This is not mine. This is just a temporary dwelling that God has facilitated for me and my wife and my family to dwell. But this is not mine. When I die, my dwelling for this body will be a hole six feet deep. And whatever it is they prepare there at, at Rivero Funeral House, that's what I really have Physically speaking, hell reminds us of that total ruin of that state and of that condition. Peter says in Second Peter 3 that the elements we know on earth, the things we know about this creation will be melted with fire. Now, I don't know if you like astrophysics and you like to follow those things, but, but you see this, those simulations of when our star, the sun, goes into this supernova condition before it, it explodes and disappears, but it's going to basically take over the earth. And they say, well, is it, it's five billions of years from now. Could be five billions of years from now. Could be five months from now. We're five days. We're 5,000 years or 500 of the day and hour. Nobody knows, the Bible says. But Peter says, the elements will be burned and will disappear and will be melted. Jesus told his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, there's nothing else they can do. I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear him who, once the body is dead, has the power, Matthew says, to cast into hell. Luke says, to destroy in hell. Total ruin. Side note, quick application. Your boss, your employment, nothing in this life has any priority whatsoever to your honoring, fearing, worshiping God. Get it clear in your mind because all your boss can do is fire you. All the worst person can do to you is kill you. 
Jesus says, fear him who once the body is dead has power to destroy in hell. A lake of fire, a great chasm, said, says Jesus in the parable of Luke 16. A great chasm between you and us. He, Abraham tells the rich man. And nobody can go from here to there. Nobody can come from there to here. Some people say it may be a reference to the Dead Sea. Those of you who have been to the Dead Sea have enjoyed the fun of just throwing yourself into the water and not being able to sink because the water is so dense as a result of all those salts and all those things that it has because it is sitting in this body of perhaps an old volcano that had brimstone and things. And and some people say, well, in the old times, people would bring things to the the Dead Sea and throw them away. That was like kind of a big trash place. And perhaps that's the illustration or the reference. Here's a place of total ruin. Here's a place where everything will disappear and be destroyed. And Jesus' point is, the ruin of hell is so encompassing, is so absolute, is so great that it's worth giving up everything to not go there. That's why he said if your eye is an occasion for you to stumble, if your right hand, the hand of honor in that culture, the hand you would extend, because this one you would use for other things. We use toilet paper today, but they would use this hand for other things in that culture. And this is what Jesus is talking about. If your right hand is an occasion for you to stumble, cut it. Or if your right foot is an occasion for you to stumble, chop it. It is better to enter life maimed, missing an arm or a leg, or or having gouged out an eye, than go into hell with your entire body. It is this onerous. It is this overwhelming it is this sobering and i'm not trying to scare you with hair fire hellfire god knows that i'm doing everything in my power not to add drama to this but this is what the word of god says this is not my invention now that brings us to the second point caveats about hell Things we have to be on guard regarding hell. And the first one is, do not trivialize hell. Don't make it trivial. Because if hell were something trivial or of little importance, we wouldn't have the gospel we have. I cannot wrap my mind or my emotions over this. An immaterial, infinite God that exists above space, time, and matter became flesh, assumed a human nature, got into the womb of a woman, took a human nature, and somehow, some way, in this hypostatic union of divine and humanity, He remains in the second person of the Trinity, the Son being the God-man, as Tony read. Jesus Christ, the man. I cannot wrap my head around that. If hell were trivial, 
we wouldn't have that doctrine. If hell were something to be downplayed, then why would God bother sending his son to become man and die in our place? Recently I read Psalm 22, the sufferings of Christ on the cross. He could count all his bones. His tongue cleft or got stuck to his palate. He was in extreme anguish, naked, hanging on a cross. But that is nothing compared to the anger, wrath of his father bearing the curse of sin. If hell were something trivial, why that? Hell is not the subject of jokes. Hell is not a filler for our conversation. Hey, such and such, could, could you do this for me? Hell no! I would use another word to emphasize my no. Are you asking if somebody knows about something? What the hell he knows? I would use another location, condition, or state to describe the stupidity or ignorance of a person. Hell is not a trivial subject. And I don't want to be legalistic. I come from the legalistic world of fundamentalist Baptist and then fundamentalist Reformed Baptist. I come from that world and I'm not interested in being legalistic. All I'm saying is if in light of what Scripture says, you consider that hell can be something to be joked about and trivialized and to pull jokes off, maybe you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading or you're not considering it as seriously as it ought to be. Now, on the other hand, beware of theological sadism. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. S-A-D-I-S-M. That's what I'm trying to say. Beware of being a theological saddest person. This is the individual who is angry with the world, who is angry, angry with society, who is angry with the planet, who is angry with the government and with anything that is on this planet and just gets this release and relief by sending everybody and everyone to hell. And you can see it in their anger, the way they, they just speak about hell and you're going to hell. Oh, beware. Hell should make us weep. If we really ponder about hell, it's like John Stott wrote at the beginning of that quote I read to you. We either turn off a switch in our brains or we just crack under the weight of it. But it's not something to be sadistic about. Some of you remember Rick Chapman. He died five years ago. Five years ago to this time. Many years ago, maybe 33 years ago, 1990, about this time, he was preaching on forgiveness. In this pulpit, when this pulpit was there. And I remember Rick saying with tears, if you can't forgive a person, then meditate on hell. Bring your mind to think about hell. And if after pondering on 
what hell is. You don't find it sufficient to weep for that person, to pray for that person to be forgiven, to pray blessings upon that person who hurt you, then you're not getting the picture. And I submit to you the same. Beware of the other extreme. And the other extreme is not speaking about hell. Well, I'm not going to speak about hell. I heard a very famous, <laughs> I don't know if he's well intended or not, he's, I'm not his judge, but he's famous and I'm not going to mention his name, being interviewed on, by, by Larry King and the other one was John MacArthur and then he was on the other side and, and Larry King came clearly to him and says, hey, tell me, do you believe that Christ is the way to salvation? And he started backpedaling, well, it's not my job to say who's condemned. It's not my job to say who's saved or not. And just backpedaling, backpedaling. Beware of that extreme. We don't want to use hell in a sadistic way. But we cannot avoid speaking about hell. You know why? Because love incarnate is the person who has spoken most about hell. And to me, that's one of those tensions in scripture Jesus spoke about hell more than any other character in scripture and if Jesus spoke about it so frequently and so earnestly we are not who to say well I don't want to speak about that subject well you speak the truth but you speak it in love Chad Bird says that we have to be like Jeremiah Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. Why? Because Jeremiah was very stern, speaking from God to the people. When, when he would turn around from the people and go to God to intercede for the people, he wept, pleading for them. So we should be stern when we speak the truth. We should not cut corners to be popular. But when we turn around... And ask God for those that need the truth, we should be weeping for their souls. Ezekiel was reminded of God or by God of a watchman. Says, you're the watchman, Ezekiel. You're on the tower. There are no raiders in those days. There's no sonars. There's no satellites. There's a guy on a tower, hopefully with good eyesight, checking if there's anything moving on the distance and if he sees a horse coming or the group of horses or whatever he has to sound the alarm and tell the guys behind him hey they're coming be ready God told Ezekiel Ezekiel you're that watchman you have to sound the alarm and if you sound the alarm and they don't hear you it's okay they had a prophet in their midst but if you don't sound the alarm because you're a coward I will demand their blood from your hands. Now I'm not using that as they used it with me when I was an 18 year old kid to go out and evangelize two by twos, passing out tracts on the street corners. I'm not using that to manipulate you into evangelism because that's not the context of the word. The context of the word is you have children, you have people around you, you have people who work with you, you have friends, you have a circle of influence. <laughs> you are their watchman. Nobody comes to the Lord because of my good testimony, which consists of voting Republican, not eating lunch with anyone, not going out with anyone and being separate and holy, reading my Bible. 
Nobody comes to the Lord that way. People come to the Lord listening to the truth and to the gospel explained and expounded in love. And fourthly, (laughs) beware of preconceived ideas about hell. And this is a hard one. This is where some of you may want to stone me because because perceive me as a heretic. But I'll say it, and I don't care anymore. Honestly, I don't care. Hell is not what Dante Alighieri said in his Divine Comedy. I saw this morning a picture on Facebook of a face surrounded by flames. Escape from hell. Well, that ain't hell. That's an allegory of what hell is like. So, hell is not to be learned anywhere else than from Scripture. And hopefully the seven or eight things I told you about hell, I showed you where they come from in Scripture. The early church fathers were not unanimous about the duration of hell. You should know that. You should know that Clement, Origen, Chrysostom, and at some point Augustine, They were not sure if hell was flames forever and ever. Some of them actually believed something which is kind of dangerous. It is called the apocatastasis theory, that the flames of hell were temporary, and then eventually the dross of sin would be consumed from every person, and everyone would be saved. That's when purgatory came out, which is not a biblical doctrine. I'm just letting you know that there has been debate from the church fathers to this day, over the duration of hell. Is it eternal flames or is it eternal damnation, destruction, annihilation? I don't know. I asked a friend who knew well John Stott, and I says, what is exactly what John Stott thought about hell? And he told me, he said it would not be inconsistent with God if he put an end not to the damnation of hell, but to the torments of hell. That's what he believed. In the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word destruction, perdition, loss, death is used. Eternal life versus eternal perdition. Could that mean annihilation? What do I believe? It doesn't matter what I believe. It's really completely irrelevant what I may believe. The Bible says hell is separation from God. Separation from God's kindness. Total ruin, damnation, perdition, loss, curse, condemnation, total oblivion, worthlessness, shame, and perpetual confusion. The Bible says that. And the Bible says it's not worth to win or earn your life and lose it for eternity on account of hell. Now, the story of the gospel is not about hell. Thank God it is not. Because salvation is being freed from the presence, guilt, and condemnation of sin. Hell is the presence, the guilt, and the condemnation of sin. Jesus came to bring salvation. 
and to save sinners. In fact, salvation makes sense because there is something called perdition. Do you want to be saved? Saved from what? Modern evangelism is very cool. Modern evangelism has a lot of programs. We have people who come to church, oh, yeah, but, I, you know, I need something for my children too. And, and you guys are kind of boring. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We're, we're, we're not super cool church. We don't have a black background here. We don't have a super orchestra. We don't have all kinds of programs. We don't have a Disney-designed area for the children. No, we're boring and we're little. Yes, we know. But you know what salvation is? Wherever you will go, you can go wherever you want. It's okay. But salvation is being freed and saved from hell. That's salvation. Salvation is not finding a nice place to, for your family to hang out on Sundays. Get that clear. It doesn't matter where you go. Salvation would make sense without perdition. The good news is that Jesus took care of hell. God took care of hell by sending his son to suffer exactly what hell is on the cross. Jesus suffered or was made a curse for us. That's what Isaiah and 2 Corinthians remind us of. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross. Yesterday I was thinking about two events that I couldn't please my children. That they asked me for something and I couldn't. Whenever I think of them, I almost cry. Because I couldn't give them what they wanted. It was not unlawful. One of them was they wanted to spend another day in Disney World. And the other one was Laura who wanted me to extend the wedding ceremony. And I couldn't. It was 2 a.m. already. You guys were dancing too hard. So I couldn't do that. But I think about it and I, and I cry because I wanted to give my children everything lawful they asked me. And here's the father hearing his son, his beloved from eternity, the delight of his eyes saying, Father, if it is possible... Pass this cup from me at Gethsemane, at the tree where Adam blew it. There he is in front of a tree saying, if it's possible, pass this cup from me. And the father said, it is not because of hell, because of sin. You have to bear the curse of sin. You have to bear the transgression. You have to bear the wrath. You have to suffer hell if you want to save them. And off he went, because he said, not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, naked, he suffered the anguish of hell. Frequently I ask God, don't let me be ashamed. Don't let me be ashamed. And this thought comes, Jesus hanging naked on a cross. Yes, because the Middle, Eve, the Middle, Eve, the Middle Ages church put cloths on him, but he was naked. Naked. Do you ever dream being naked in public? I do frequently, and it's a horrible dream. Jesus was naked for real on the cross. He suffered shame and anguish. The rich man said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to put some water in my tongue. Jesus on the cross says, I'm thirsty. They brought vinegar to him, mixed with mire was kind of an analgesic. He says, no, I don't want to take any analgesic. This pain I have to bear on my own without help. 
The rich man pleaded for his brothers, but send someone to them that they may not come here. And Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. On the cross, he suffered God's desertion and separation. I still have to understand the meaning of Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cannot put my head around that. God, telling God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was burying our sins. He was bearing our guilt. He was suffering our hell. And he bore, in the words of Isaiah 53, 5, the punishment of our peace on the cross. So the gospel is not hell. The gospel is Jesus. But for Jesus to make sense, we have to understand what is hell. Because there are only two places to deal with sin. The cross or hell. I either, I'm either sent into oblivion, total ruin, loss, destruction, confusion, eternal loss in hell because of my sin. Or I go to the cross and plead for him who paid, son of David, have mercy on me. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Either or. And blessed are those who take part on the first resurrection. Remember reading that in Revelation? Why? Why is it blessed after the millennium to take part on the first resurrection? Because Jesus said, Whomever believes him who sent me has passed from death to life and shall not come into condemnation. Because Paul says, he gave you life when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Because Jesus said, there is a time when all those who are in the sepulchers in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and some of them will rise to a resurrection of life. And some of them will rise to a resurrection of death or condemnation. Those who in this life are risen by the work of the Holy Spirit. Quickening their souls. Giving them life. Regenerating them so that they can go to Christ and run and believe. Those who take part of the first resurrection by faith, are blessed. Because the second death has no power over them. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall not die forever. Amen. Father, bless your word. Blow over the chaff and keep what is of the Spirit to your glory and eternal purposes. Jesus' honor, in whose name we pray.